Morning, everybody. Hope you've had a fantastic week. The sunshine uh, was shining down a little bit yesterday. I think he might poke his head out again today. We had a beautiful day for a wedding yesterday. And again, just congratulations to Michelle and Michael. And uh, keep them in your prayers as they uh, travel on their honeymoon shortly. Um, but I was uh, honored to be a part of that and just excited for you two and what God has in store for both of you. As for everybody else, I'm excited to see you guys as well. Uh, glad we're all here together to worship on the Lord's Day and to celebrate all the good things that God has given us, foremost of which is the salvation that we have in His Son, the Christ, our King, Jesus. And so we're going to continue through our journey through the Gospel of John this morning, and I want to encourage you to open up to John chapter 4. We've got a bit of a long text to cover this morning. It's one of those texts where we could split this up into multiple lessons, but I'm going to just try to highlight a few things that I think are most important for us to fix our attention on as we move through the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospel, the story of the Samaritan woman. And so if you'd like to follow along with me in John chapter 4, we're going to work through the text together this morning. So John and, and Glenn Sr., where are you? I remembered my glasses. Glenn and I are only a couple years apart, so it was a good, good reminder that uh, these things are important. So John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the story starts off this way. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Remember when a couple weeks ago in our text we were talking about the last encounter we have with John personally in the Gospel of John is where his own disciples are upset about this. Hey, that guy on the other side of the river, he's getting more disciples than you are. And John makes that famous statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. So that's the last text we talked about. Well, now that same news has reached the ears of the Pharisees that Jesus is gaining in popularity even beyond John. And then it says, kind of as an aside, although in fact it was not Jesus himself who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more into Galilee. There's this theme that runs throughout all the Gospels where Jesus is very much doing things on his terms according to his timeline. And so it's not yet his time. He's not looking for the spotlight when it comes to the attention the Pharisees are giving him. And so he's not ready for that yet. And so he leaves that area to go to another where the spotlight won't be on him so much. And so as a result of that, it says in the next verse, now he had to go through Samaria. Now the reason he had to go through Samaria, first and foremost, is because that was the quickest way to get to where he was going. It was the easiest route from where he was to where he wanted to go, and so he had to pass through the area of Samaria. I would suggest to you, though, this is one of those statements that has dual meanings. I think there's more to it than just this is the easiest way for him to get to where he was going. I think he had to go there because there's something he needed to do in Samaria along the way. Or rather, there was someone he needed to talk with in Samaria along the way. I am of the strong opinion that this is not just happenstance. Jesus didn't decide that morning, you know, I think I'll go the quick way, and along the way he happens to interact with this random person at a well. I think this is all very carefully calculated. If you remember, if you've studied the book of Acts recently, there's a lot said about how the Spirit is directing 
when and where people go to different places, preventing them from going to certain places, encouraging them to go to other places, joining people together, taking people apart. I think the same thing is happening in the life of Christ during his ministry. I think this is all orchestrated by the Father through the Spirit, and Jesus is going to Samaria not just because it's the quickest way to get to where he's going, but because he's got something important to do when he gets there. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So there's a couple things to notice here. First and foremost is the fact that Jesus sits down at a well because what? Because he's tired, right? The full humanity of Jesus is on display here. It's a long walk, and it's a hot area. And it's noon, it's the hottest part of the day, and there's a well, and so he stops because he's tired and he's thirsty. And this reference here to the time of day might just be because John wants us to know what time it is. It's hot, and Jesus has been walking a while to help set the stage for that. It might also be because he wants us to think about that in relation to the encounter Jesus is about to have with this woman that shows up at the well. Most of the times when women went to get water from the well, they would go early in the morning and late in the evening when it was cooler outside. This woman shows up in the middle of the day, and why is that? Some have suggested perhaps it's because of a reputation, an unsavory reputation that she had, and she wasn't welcome to be at the well at other parts of the day. The text doesn't say that, but it does make you wonder. And so we go on. It says in verses 7 through 9, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And so the stage is set. It's noon, he's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's at this well, he's the only one there, and this Samaritan woman shows up to draw water, and he asks her for a drink. Will you give me a drink of water? And the Samaritan woman says to him, and there's surprise in her voice here. This is her response to his request. How can you ask for a drink of water from me? Why? You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. How is this even happening right now? You are breaking some kind of cultural norm right here, and I don't understand what's happening. And then we get this commentary by John, the author, says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This woman is caught off guard by Jesus' request. This is a surprise encounter for her that a Jewish man would be asking her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. And she points that out directly to him. And so I think it's worth talking just for a couple minutes about who exactly the Samaritans were and why this is such a surprise to this woman. This is one of those passages I encourage you to write down and spend some time in later on as you get time on your own. But let me just reference it. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 and following, we get a historical narrative regarding the history of the area of Samaria. And it says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sephavram, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its town. So the Assyrian king takes people, Gentile people from other places, displaces them, and puts them in the area of Samaria, displacing the people who once lived there. And as the text goes on, it details what happened as a result. You've got these people who find themselves surrounded by Israelites, and so they adopt Israelite religion. They start to worship the one Jehovah God. 
But they're also worshiping their own foreign deities that they've brought in as a matter of culture as well. And as the author puts it at that time in 2 Kings, it says, to this day, their children and grandchildren continue to worship God and worship these foreign idols as well. And eventually those people began to intermarry with the Israelites around them. And you end up with this group of people that the Gentiles don't like and the Jews very much don't like. And so this is where we find ourselves in Jesus' day, is the Samaritans had become a, a, a kind of disdained people. People did not like them, and Israelites didn't want anything to do with them. A couple of references from Scripture here. First and foremost, do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Okay, it's found in Luke chapter 10, and in that story, a man is traveling. He's taken on the roadside by robbers, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And as the story goes, a Levite sees him, doesn't help him. A priest sees him and doesn't help him. And then who finally stops to help him? Remember? A Samaritan. The whole weight of that story, the reason why it's such a significant story as Jesus tells it, is that it's a scandalous idea to suggest that the righteousness of a Samaritan might surpass the righteousness of a priest or a Levite. The whole point of the story is that a Samaritan was good. That tells you what the Jews thought about Samaritans. And then later on in John chapter 8, in verse 48, Jesus has this conversation with the Jews, and they're getting really frustrated with him. And so they turn to what every, you know, every one of us does when we can't win an argument, we just start to insult people, right? And so they hurl the best insults they can at him, which is this. The Jews answered him, are we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Okay, it illustrates what they thought about Samaritans. If they're using it as a derogatory way of slandering Jesus' character, you must be a Samaritan. This is a picture I jokingly told someone this morning. These are the plans for our future expansion. This is uh, the foundation for our, our... No, I'm just kidding. This is what the ruins of the temple in Samaria look like today. So if you were to travel there today, this is what's left. But there was a temple constructed... Uh, on Mount Gerizim that the Samaritans used. And so they had this Jewish uh, uh, heritage about them, but it was so influenced by the Gentiles that in the mind of the Jews, it had become this very corrupt way of worshiping God. And so they didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. They constructed their own temple. They had Jewish scriptures, but not all of the Jewish scriptures. They only had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And so they knew the law. They didn't know the full revelation of God to his covenant people. And so, you know, it's this very interesting situation. But this is the history of the Samaritans, and this is why they were so disliked in Jesus' day. So Jesus has a response now to this woman. How is it that you, a Jew, can ask for a drink of water from me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus' response is this. If you knew the gift of God and, pay attention to this part, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with this story and I don't know how you frame this story in your mind. What is, what is the, the context of this story? What is really the, the, the major theme of this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, but I would strongly encourage you to reframe it and think about it like this. This is in line with the major theme of the entire Gospel of John, which we keep talking about. What does John say at the end of John chapter 20? I could have written a lot more. I wrote these things 
so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So what is the theme of the Gospel of John? It's about the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, Messiah. He is king, and that life is found only in his name. And I would suggest to you that's what this conversation is about as well. Later on, we're going to talk about the whole spirit and truth thing, which tends to take up most of our attention when we go to this passage. Normally, when guys like me preach out of John chapter 4, it's all about worshiping in spirit and truth, which is important. But the primary concern here, as we see right here, as Jesus starts to steer this conversation in a specific direction, is all about the identity of Jesus. If you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, then what? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What does this woman need to know that she doesn't yet understand? Who the person is that she's speaking with. And it would have changed her interaction entirely. There is rich imagery associated with water found all throughout Scripture. Already in John, we've been introduced to some of it. You've got John baptizing in a place where there's much water. You've got Jesus in Cana in John chapter 2 turning the water into wine. You've got the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Water is this theme that keeps coming up in the Gospel of John. Ken read for us from John chapter 7 where Jesus stands up and, and asks people to come to him if they're thirsty so they can find a source of water that they're looking for, right? So there's this theme all throughout John, but it's throughout Scripture as well. And Jesus is tapping into that theme in this conversation he has with this woman. Psalm 42, first two verses, this is a passage we like to sing. It's, it's a favorite devotional style song that we've sung for a long time in the church. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet my God? Isaiah has this imagery running throughout its pages. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Uh, their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I'm sorry about the... Uh, the formatting there, it got a little wonky. Jeremiah, likewise, two passages from Jeremiah I'll share with you. Here in chapter 2, my people have committed two sins. First off, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And secondly, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't even hold water. My people have done two things. They've stopped looking to me as the source of water. And number two, they've decided to form their own sources of water which don't hold water to begin with, right? What happens when we turn away from God as the source of life and try to replace Him? We end up not with life, but with death. We end up with broken cisterns. It's a powerful image. Jeremiah chapter 17, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. This imagery is all throughout scripture. And then we get to this. In Ezekiel chapter 47, something interesting happens in the, in the latter half of the book of Ezekiel, the last handful of chapters. You've got this beautiful picture being painted for us of the temple being rebuilt. And not only the temple being rebuilt, but the glory of God, which had left the temple, now being returned to the temple. And it's a challenging set of chapters but I want to share with you one of the images that comes out. It's in chapter 47, and we read this. 
the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Okay, so first of all, what does the temple represent to the Israelites? It's the place where God dwells, right? And in the Holy of Holies, where the altar is, is where God's presence dwells. And so you've got this stream of water flowing out from the presence of God in the temple. And as you go throughout that chapter, that, that trickle of water turns into a stream, and then it starts to get knee-high, and pretty soon it's this gushing river that Ezekiel tells us you can't even get across. It's such a big river. And that river divides the land in two, and on either side of the bank of the river are these trees that are growing year-round. They're bearing fruit, and as they bear fruit, the fruit is good for the healing of the people that eat of that fruit. It's this beautiful image of life-giving water coming out of the presence of God. Now, on its own, it's like, okay, that's interesting, but later on, we find John again using this very imagery in the book of Revelation as he paints a picture for us of what our home with God is going to look like. In Revelation chapter 21, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And then look at what happens in the next chapter. As we're introduced to the New Jerusalem and this imagery of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth and all this Eden-like imagery flows out of it. He's borrowing from that passage in Ezekiel. And he says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. There's no more seasons. It's just bearing fruit all year long. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's imagery borrowed from Ezekiel. It's all about water, God being the source of water, God being the source of this river of life. And if we're going to be connected to that source of life, then we've got to tap into that source of water. All of this imagery Jesus has in mind as he's having this conversation with this woman. And I would suggest to you that all of this, again, circles back to the identity of Jesus. This water is coming out of the temple, the presence of God in Ezekiel. and Revelation in the New Jerusalem, it's not coming out of the temple because there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. You remember why? There's no need for a temple because God is there with his people. It's still coming out of the presence of God, however. This image throughout Scripture from beginning to end of this source of water flowing from the presence of God giving healing to the nations and providing a source of never-ending life. And Jesus takes all of that and he makes it about himself. And I would just remind you of what happened in John chapter 2 when Jesus has that scene in the temple where he clears out all the money changers. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And they say, what are you talking about? You know how long it's taken to build this temple? And he says the temple that he was talking about was what? Not Herod's temple, but his body. He is the presence of God. And if we're going to find that source of that river of life, then where do we have to go to find it? To him, to that temple, to Jesus. This whole conversation about getting this woman to understand 
where that source of the river of life really is. It's found in him. So we get back to our text. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And she asked this question not knowing that pretty soon she's going to find the answer to that question, which is, yes, he is greater than the father Jacob. Right? What he's offering isn't just water out of a well. Right? This woman is suffering from the same problem that Nicodemus had in the previous chapter. She's thinking purely about what she can see in front of her. This isn't a conversation about the water in the well. It's a conversation about the water in the well. You know what I'm saying, all right? There's a second layer of meaning to this conversation. She isn't able to grasp that yet. And so Jesus has to break through that barrier in her thinking and try to get her to think about it from a different perspective. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. You can get a drink out of this well that we're standing at. And it will quench your thirst for a while, but what's going to happen? You're going to need more water. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But again, she's not getting all this because she's still fixated on the physical water in the physical well. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Right? She's, she's stuck thinking about what's right in front of her, what she can see, what she can touch. And you can understand the appeal to this. Well, maybe we can't today. Because what happens when we get thirsty? What do you do? You go to the sink, and you turn it on, and water's just always there, right? Sometimes water does things you don't want it to, right, Josh? Uh, but the water's always there. We've got filtered water in our fridge. I don't ever have to worry about getting sick from the water I drink because there's just always cold water available to me anytime I need it. We're so far removed from the world where you had to get up, lug the, the pitchers to wherever the well was, and then lug them back full of water. So if you're talking about, I can skip that whole process and just have water available to me all the time, sign me up. I'm ready for that. And she thinks that's what Jesus is offering her. But something really dramatic happens in this story. Look here. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. How can Jesus get her to think in more spiritual terms? What can he say to help her break through in her thinking and see what he wants her to see? And so he does something really shocking. He changes the subject completely, seemingly out of the blue. This is his response to her. Go call your husband and come back. Why? Why? Look what happens next. She replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is just and quite true. And suddenly this woman is disarmed. And suddenly she's thinking about spiritual things. He has broken through in a way that only he can. That wouldn't work for you and I. You meet a stranger on the bus and you have a conversation and suddenly you just start asking them to expose their sinfulness. That usually doesn't go the way you want it to go. But this is a conversation she's having with her creator and her savior. And he's reaching through to her in a way that others can't. Why does he change the subject? Why talk about 
husbands. People have come up with all kinds of suggestions. Some people have suggested, well, there's this natural history. There's this association that we have between wells and where husbands meet wives. Think about some of the patriarchs and how they met their wives at wells, right? So maybe it's just a natural way to change the conversation. Or some have suggested that maybe she's being flirtatious with Jesus and he doesn't like her tone and so he's changing the subject to make it a little more serious. All kinds of suggestions. I think what's really happening here is just what I've already stated, that Jesus is just doing what needs to be done. He's changing the subject in such a way where she now comes face to face with the brokenness that exists in her life so that she is now open to a spiritual conversation. We talked about it last week, didn't we? How Jesus has this way of talking with people and breaking down that barrier that we normally have where I don't want my faults exposed. But suddenly when I'm standing in the presence of my Savior, they become clear and obvious. And so Jesus points out to her that there's brokenness in her life. I don't know if this is accusatory or not. I don't know what this woman's history is. I don't know if she's been the victim in all of these cases or if she's been the perpetrator of all these broken relationships. And, and you can take your best guess, but the text doesn't tell us, and I don't know that it's all that important. Because all of us can be stand-ins for this woman. When we stand before our Savior, our brokenness is exposed, and it opens us up to the realization that, you know what, I do need more than just a drink of water. There's something lacking in my life. And I want to know the source of it so I can seek it out and find it. And so Jesus breaks through the shallowness of this relationship into a deeper kind of conversation. And now she's open to the reality in front of her that the man speaking with her in this moment isn't just a random Jewish guy asking for a drink. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. He just told her something that he had no business knowing. How do you know about the history of my relationships? There's something unique about this guy. And so look at what she does. All of a sudden, the conversation changes in nature. It's not about drinks of water anymore. It's a spiritual conversation. And she's got a question. Okay, something unique about this guy. He knows a lot more than he's letting on. He must be a prophet. So she's got this burning question, the question that laid at the heart of the distinction between Jews and Samaritans and the conflict that existed between those two groups of people. And so she just comes out and asks him, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. I showed you the ruins of the temple. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So what's the deal? Where is the correct place to worship God? Now it's interesting because while this woman is speaking already at this point in time, that temple had been destroyed. Before her and Jesus were alive, that temple had been destroyed. So worship in that temple wasn't even an option. By the time most people read this gospel, and maybe even by the time John writes it, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. And so for readers of this, after the fact, it's an interesting question because if worship to God is dependent upon location, and both of those temples are destroyed, then what now? Are we out of luck? Where do we go to find the presence of God if we don't even have the option of seeking out either one of those places any longer? But she's concerned about this. Where do I go to find God? Is it on this mountain or is it in Jerusalem like the Jews claim? 
Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And this is not Jesus being rude to this woman. This is just stating the fact. They worshiped out of ignorance because they didn't have available to them what the Israelites had available to them. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is where you're expecting me to go on a long tangent about how we do church right, because that's what this chapter is all about, right? It's not. It's not that it's not relevant to conversations about how we worship. It's just that that is not what Jesus is talking about here. In this conversation with this woman, he's not concerned about what churches in the future are going to do in the context of worship, whether they're worshiping in spirit and in truth, and how we can accuse people doing it wrong that they're not worshiping in spirit and truth. That's not this conversation. This is a conversation about geography. Where do we go to worship God? There is a time coming when the mountain won't matter. Because a different kind of temple is here. And you worship God in spirit. And spirit isn't bound by location. Where do we find the spirit of God today? Dwelling within us. We become those temples. But all of this points back to Jesus, doesn't it? Remember how John opened up his gospel when we talked about the prologue weeks and weeks ago? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then he skipped down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or literally tabernacled among us, right? What, what was the temple? It's the place where you go to seek out the presence of God. And Jesus comes in the, with the full presence of God made manifest in human flesh. So this woman doesn't have to go to that temple or the other temple. She's in the presence of God in that moment, speaking with him face to face at that well in an encounter she never expected to have. Now, you can understand she's still probably a little confused about this whole conversation. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, by the way, it's a great passage. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. And every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. There is a time coming when in Christ... Even Samaritans can worship in the presence of God without worrying about having to make it to Jerusalem to do so. And it's a beautiful thought. Okay, so this woman's still a little confused. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ. I know the King, the Anointed One, is coming. And why is that relevant? Because when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And I love this because me reading between the lines, at least, I'm, I'm hearing her say, yeah, I don't quite get what you said, Cool, pretty soon Messiah is going to come and he'll help me understand all of this, right? Like, I don't get it yet, but I know when Messiah comes, he'll help me understand. And then we find the bombshell revelation in the middle of this whole encounter is what Jesus says next to this woman in this place. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he, or literally just, I am. Jesus makes this powerful self-revelation to this Samaritan woman at a well. 
This isn't made in the temple. This isn't made in the context of his disciples all gathered together. He didn't go to the synagogue and seek out the right authorities to make this revelation. He says this to a Samaritan woman at the well. I am the Messiah and the Christ that you're waiting for. And I want that to sink in for just a moment. Who it is that Jesus decides to make this revelation to the Samaritan woman, and that's not lost on the apostles, because look what happens next. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. She's got two strikes against her. She's a Samaritan, and she's a woman. And why would Jesus be talking to the Samaritan woman? They're shocked. But no one asked him, what do you want, or why are you talking with her, <laughs> right? They're just watching it all unfold, surprised by the whole encounter. And again, I would suggest to you, this isn't an accident. Jesus isn't having a conversation that surprised him. This is a conversation he planned to have with this woman in this place. And that says something to us. The world is filled with unseen people. I don't mean invisible people. I mean unseen people. For all practical purposes, they might as well be invisible. People who go unnoticed. People who carry the weight of brokenness, sometimes enormous burdens throughout most of their life with no one to help shoulder those burdens. The world is filled with people like that. Maybe you're one of those people this morning. Maybe you feel like no one sees the pain you're experiencing. No one understands what it is that you are going through in life night now. Maybe you feel like you could walk in here and walk out and no one would notice. You could stop showing up and no one would know that you're not here. The world, the world is filled with people like that. And I would suggest to you that Jesus purposefully sought out those people during his ministry to let them know that the people around them might not see them, but their Creator and their Savior does. We do not escape the notice of the one who loves us. Ever. I referenced Zacchaeus last week. I'm going to reference him again because he's such a great case study in exactly this. Jesus shows up to town and everybody shows up to see him. And Zacchaeus is truly the unseen man because he's so short. He, Jesus can't see him and he can't see Jesus. And so what does he do? Climbs up in a tree to get a better view. And out of that entire crowd of people, Jesus singles him out and says what? Come down because I'm coming to your house tonight. And I don't know if you remember how that story unfolds, but the people who see that are furious. Out of all the people in the crowd, you chose him? He doesn't deserve your attention. What about all of us? We're more righteous. Why is he the one that got your attention? And again, Jesus didn't do that on accident. This is very purposeful so that people like Zacchaeus, those people no one pays attention to, the people that are written off, the people that are discounted, the people that are made to feel less than, are the ones that get the most attention from the Savior when he shows up in their midst. And isn't that something? And doesn't that say something about the God that we serve? If you are feeling that way this morning, like you are one of those unseen people, I promise you, your Savior sees you. And I want to elaborate on that just a second because that, that terminology today has become kind of loaded. We say you see someone, we talk about validation, right? I see you means I validate you. 
Jesus is validating this woman, just not in the way that we usually think about it, right? He's not, he's not validating whatever bad choices she's made in this life. She's not validating the brokenness that she's experiencing. He is validating her worth and value in the eyes of her creator. By singling her out in that moment and having this conversation with her and making this revelation to her in that moment, he is saying to her clearly, you matter. And I can only imagine what that encounter must have been like. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. This is her reaction. The woman leaves her water jar and goes back to town, kind of like the the first disciples he called. They dropped everything, and they went, and they found the people they loved, and they did what? They told him to come and check this guy out. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And then she asks a question. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one we've been waiting for? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And it reminds me so much of chapter 1 where Jesus calls Philip and then Philip goes and gets Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah. You've got to come and meet this guy. This woman is essentially doing the same thing, right? This is discipleship played out again just in the unlikeliest of places with the Samaritan woman. And then we skip down towards the end of the chapter. And this is the result of all of this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And I think the implication isn't that he just locked himself in a room for two days, but that he spent time with them, teaching them and interacting with them. And this is the result. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What is this story about? It's about Jesus revealing his identity to a woman that everyone else would have thought had no right to have this encounter. But he chooses her, and he helps her to understand that he is the source of water flowing from the presence of God, bringing life and healing to the nations. And if she wants healing in her own life, if she wants to move past the brokenness that has followed her throughout her life, then he is the well that she needs to dip into. And she comes to that conclusion through that interaction But what's remarkable about it is it's not just her. It's not just one woman's journey to faith. An entire village believes in Jesus because of this encounter he has with this woman. And what's more, if you go over to Acts chapter 8, what happens? The gospel is carried to Samaria just like Jesus said it would. And they believe in droves. And on its own, it sounds like a weird story. Like, why would these Samaritans all of a sudden start believing so quickly in the name of Jesus? It's because of this. It's because of this seed that was planted years before with this encounter with this woman at that well. It's a story about how the gospel, how the kingdom of the gospel grows. It starts in the heart of one person. And that one person with excitement tells another person. And the kingdom grows. And that tiny mustard seed turns into the biggest tree in the whole garden. And all the birds come and nest in its branches. Even the Samaritan birds 
and as we'll see soon, even the Gentile birds. What a beautiful thing the kingdom of God is. If you are one of those people feeling unseen this morning, your Savior sees you, and he's calling out to you. Have you drunk from his well yet this morning? That source of healing that you are looking for in your life, it is found in one place and in one place only, in Jesus Christ, the Savior and the King, and he's calling you home. If there's anything we can do to encourage you, if there's anything we can do to help you in your relationship with God, if you would like to give your life over to him this morning in baptism, we invite you. Let's stand and let's sing this song together. Won't you come forward and let me know how it is we might be able to serve you? Let's stand and sing. Cast away from